Scrum. Of course. Nice. How about uh, on over there near the the Chesapeake Bay, over over towards DC area? <laughs> yep, we're going. All right, we good in Kentucky. We're good in Kentucky. All right, guys, welcome back, everyone, for the Savage Chromecast. I am your host, Luke. I'm your host, Josh. I am Jonathan. And as I alluded to in our intro, we have a special guest. We have Cromrad Rusty. Say hey, Rusty. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Rusty Burke is joining us it's here. Great to be here again. <laughs> One uh, of our favorite sowers of thunder. Yeah, you you are the sower of the thunder. Well, like by bars, I want to or I want to be on this treading the stair to empire. <laughs> That's right, and you're well on your way. Grinding faces into the 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 muck into the <laughs> the stones with every step. Uh, we'll be your Frankish corpses, sir. <laughs> <laughs> right on, guys. So this is the uh, this is the eighth episode for our eighth season. So that's the I don't know that seems that's not the seventh of a seventh. So no. it's not it's not quite magical. But uh, this is our discussion of the Sowers of Thunder, which is also our capper for our Road to the East, or our season eight. So we're going to talk about a Howard story, and then we're also going to try to try to wrap a little bit of ribbon around it put a bow on top that's the that's the goal here with this discussion that's the chromecast way and so we were we were excited when we when we reached out to rusty and he said he could hop on with us so thanks for the the short notice accommodating our schedule man uh this is going to be fun yeah man for real thanks for joining us uh you've been oh, you've been that. you've been out on the road you've been a road warrior here recently but uh yeah i've Spent way too much time out of my, not in my own bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Rusty, what are you drinking over there? In honor of our protagonist tonight, I'm drinking uh, Irish whiskey and Guinness. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Good stuff. You nice. would never have that on any other night, though, right? Not me, no. I, I had to go out and get this special. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> what about you, John? I'm gonna have some white tea tonight. I'm fighting off a cold, so I'm uh I'm from the British Isles as well, perhaps not the Irish side, but I've got Twinnings of London. It's a, a white tea with lime and ginger. So I'm feeling fancy. <laughs> Jolly good, sir. <laughs> Jolly good. Yes, pip, pip. We uh we just uh cracked open a bottle of uh pub cider that, that I made super special. It's it's straight up Costco apple juice and a little bit of yeast nutrient and then some some English L yeast and two weeks later, wada ba, you got it. Ba bam. <laughs> it's it's ready to go. go. Okay. So, so we're drinking that. Not exactly not exactly bathtub gin, but it's pretty close. <laughs> it's it's super clean, man. It's it's like clockwork at this point. The the cider is like stupid easy, so I'm I'm sold on it. 
Yeah. I want you to get a show where you make liquor and just like Emerald where he says bam or whatever, you get to say what about? What about? What about? <laughs> you put it in the bottle. So we got that and Josh, you brought a little uh, something something over. I'm still on the hams. I'm uh look, it's four dollars for six tall cans of hams. Uh and that's where I am right now in my life. Nice. We got that <laughs> and then we got the uh, the the last bits of the old granddad one fourteen oh, that we can uh, put on some ice if we need if we need something a little bit hot. Here at the end. One one four. If we gotta if we gotta like, you know, put on the afterburners just to like <laughs> accelerate. Hit, hit the hit the last to like escape gravity the pull. <laughs> Keep it <laughs> the slingshot. We're doing the slingshot maneuver <laughs> so that we can make sure we uh end up on the right trajectory back to Earth's orbit. That's what we gotta do. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta <laughs> do. <laughs> so uh that's what we're drinking. Let's go ahead and we can jump on over and talk about our one things. Right on. All right, Rusty, I'm going to keep putting you on the uh, on the, the number one spot, the, the hot seat. Uh, do you got a one thing prepped up? I do. I nice. do. My one thing is Earthsea. Nice. I don't know if you guys are familiar with A Wizard of Earthsea and its uh, subsequent um, follow-ups. Um, I became a huge fan of it. Uh, it's Ursula Le Guin's masterpiece. I became a huge fan of it in the late 60s, early 70s when the books first came out, um, before I even discovered Howard and Conan. Um, I'd been a big fan of The Lord of the Rings. And, you know, Gandalf's a cool character, right? Right. Well, how did he get to be a wizard? Well, all of a sudden, here's this book about a young man who goes to a school to learn to be a wizard. This is like 30 years before Harry Potter, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was... It is absolutely outstanding, and um, I've I've been a lifelong fan of Ursula Le Guin. She writes wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's, of course, her um, philosophical base is very Taoist, which resonates with me too. But uh, it's it's really great stuff. There are, I want to say, six books, and in, in total, the first three came out in the late sixties, early seventies. Then it was like 20 years later before she did another couple of books. And uh, anyway, the reason it's my one thing is I was just last week at a reception for an exhibition of art by Charles Vess for the new uh, collected Books of Earth Sea, uh, published by, I'm trying to get it right, uh, published by Saga Press last October. These are gorgeous illustrations. You're familiar with Charles Vess? He's, I'm, uh, I'm not one, familiar. Wonderful illustrator of the fantastic. Uh, um, he's more, I would say, uh, fairy than the sword and sorcery type stuff. He's um, he wrote, or uh, he uh, did a wonderful book of book of ballads in which he did graphic novel treatment for a lot of English ballads and stuff. Yep, that there you go. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, his uh, he he and Neil Gaiman collaborated on Stardust. They were the co-creators of Stardust. Okay, uh, he's yeah, just yeah, yeah. He's a phenomenal artist. I can I can absolutely see kind of the the Eastern influence in like the coloring and the art style and how that would yeah. complement like the Earth Sea. 
uh, materials. And That's beautiful. He worked for he worked for four years emailing back and forth with Ursula, sending her sketches, and she would comment on them, and they went back and forth. He's he never actually met her in person. They just you know had this online relationship for four years, um, but she had been unhappy with the treatment of you know, the illustrations of her books for years and years. And so she was just tickled at the chance to collaborate with somebody on it and, and really get it right. This was at a really small museum in Abingdon, Virginia, which is where Charles is from. You guys would appreciate that. He's made a name for himself coming from a very small town in southwestern Virginia. Um, he, uh, all of the illustrations were on display. And I think if I remember correctly, it's the only time all of the illustrations have been displayed together. And they are, he's donating them when they're taken down. They're going, it's only up until the 24th of this month. And then when it's taken down, it'll be donated to the Ursula Le Guin archives at the University of Oregon. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah. this, is, this might be the last chance in a while to see them all together. So anybody who's close to Oregon, of course, this podcast probably won't even be out before the 24th so it's uh, too late <laughs> it's just a it was just a glorious glorious exhibition yeah that is awesome that's yep. my thing we can at least tweet out a link to it and and let everybody know that uh that was your one thing and if they're in the in the neighborhood they should check it out absolutely it's just beautiful yeah that's a that's that's i i've only read the first of the the earth sea novels and it just it just rocked my world and i actually didn't read it until just like a like recently in the past couple of years but uh i've read some of her sf stuff have you read much of uh of of Le Guin's like science fiction rusty yeah mm -hmm. okay yeah cool yeah i read uh like uh the left hand of darkness yeah that, that blew me away classic <laughs> my, my favorite of all of her uh books is uh, the word for world is forest it's okay. uh, set on a planet. You guys would appreciate this. Is it uh, being an ecologist? It's set on a planet in which everything's connected to everything else. You know, it's like it's very obvious as you go on that the the trees and the and the sentient inhabitants and so forth they're all connected. And basically, what it is, this is avat. You know, the movie Avatar. Mm -hmm. They ripped all of these ideas off from Ursula Le Guin oh. and never gave her credit in the movie. But if you read the word for world is forest, you'll say, wow, this is a lot like Avatar. Awesome. Yeah, I just picked up a paperback copy of, of A Wizard of Earthsea not two weeks ago. So I've never read that one. Um, okay, go on. Yeah. I, Get on it. <laughs> I, I think I could knock it out in a, a good a good day. Um it's it's not yeah, super long. They were originally marketed as young adult novels, really easy reads. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned it in in conversation with uh, my wife Ashley, and mentioned the the Harry Potter sort of connection that that you alluded to earlier, and and her eyes kind of widened. So I don't know if I'll I'll get to read my paperback before she does or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll go quickly. Yeah. Either way, for sure. Cool, cool. John, what do you got for us as far as one thing? My one thing is another podcast. I've been, I finally finished it up. It's called Dr. Death. 
It's the story of a horrible surgeon in the Dallas area who is either a sociopath or becomes unhinged or is just really poorly trained. And then he's kind of sheltered by the American medical system on accident just based on how things work. And so he, I think he worked through like over a dozen people and some of them he paralyzed. Some of them he just maimed for life. Uh, one woman lost her voice and he actually worked on his best friend and made him a quadriplegic with his poor surgery skills. Holy crap. So it's a really weird story. It's <laughs> kind of ag- aggravating, I guess, to listen to, but also deeply enthralling. So it's about six episodes. It's not too hard to listen. I did it over the course of about a week just in my back and forth commute to and from work. So uh, check it out if you're into that sort of weird, true crime, true history, oddity kind of stuff. Cool. That's spooky, dude. It is spooky. Yeah, it it's effed up stuff. Some of the things that they talk about. And there's this one email they keep referring to where he's talking to his mistress, I think. And he says he's a cold-blooded killer, and that ends up being the email that kind of sinks him when they finally bring him into court because it kind of paints him as he knew what he was doing. Uh-huh, but right. uh, if you talk to him, he doesn't seem to understand or if you listen to what he says in it because he doesn't get interviewed, but they play excerpts of him. It sounds like he doesn't really understand that he did anything wrong. So it's weird. It's just really creepy. That's that true. kind of peek into that mind is always that's that's your true sociopath right there. Right. So that's, he didn't I do think, anything wrong. Yeah, right. he he really thought that he was a great surgeon, and <laughs> despite all evidence to the contrary. Right so on. it's weird. Check it out if you're into it. Any, <laughs> <laughs> meeny, miny, Josh. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think I'll I think I'll listen to that before I go in the hospital next. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that'll put your mind at ease. Um, so uh, to to keep along a, a weird medical track, um, Luke and I spent uh, a Saturday evening playing a board game called Pandemic. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show or not. I don't think so. Um, but uh, the board game is, is pretty popular. But for vo- those who aren't familiar with it, it's a cooperative game where... Um, all of the players take on the role of, uh, either medics or, um, uh, logistics folks who are moving people around, around the board. And the board itself is a world map with cities. Uh, and during the course of the game, various diseases pop up in these cities and you and your team of medics and scientists and researchers have to, um, sort of stop the spread of these different viruses as they sort of uh, spread across the globe and, and find a cure. And uh, uh, so uh, Luke and I and our, our wives played a game of it. And how'd that turn out, Luke? Well, we, we did not, we did not win, I guess in my, in my, in my, in my head cannon, we were close enough that we eliminated, I think all but one of the, one of the uh, mass outbreaks. Yep. And so my thinking is that at least a handful, maybe a small population of a couple thousand people in a couple locations across the globe were able to, uh, I don't know, dig in deep and get underneath a volcano or something mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and hunker down for a couple hundred years and then emerge as, uh, I don't know, you know, 
triumphant, and then they realize that there's more locks on the other side of the volcano, and then all hell breaks loose in a yeah, right. post-apocalyptic kind of world, it something turn, like that. It turns into Fallout. It was almost a win, is how I'm going to put it. But man, yeah, I loved it. It was, it is absolutely the kind of game that that I like. Like from the get go, it's it's a lot of strategy and thinking, but it's also the kind of game where it seems like no matter your best laid plans like shit's going to go sideways and even all of the planning you spent 20 minutes doing it's kind of nullified 20 minutes later because of just the randomness of the the way that the disease spreads yeah uh, it is a diceless game and you you do have a lot of opportunity to converse with your teammates but there is a time factor so every turn that's taken sort of moves you a little bit closer to the end game. So you only have, you know, um, how many turns do you think we had around? Like maybe 30, 20 or 30? Uh, yeah, max. I would say more in the realm, I feel like, of like 15 or 20 or okay. something. Uh, but yeah, it's it definitely is something where the clock is ticking. And once you get past like the first, I don't know, like half hour of the game, the first half, like half dozen turns, you start sweating just the the fact that the deck is getting smaller. Like mm-hmm. that, that is the determining factor of hey, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna end. Yeah, yeah. The end <laughs> times are nigh. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Pandemic is a really fun game. It's difficult. We we were playing it on easy mode, and and we got our butts kicked. So uh, we're gonna have to try it again here one one Saturday night to save the world and have some retribution. Yeah, um, it was fun, man. But uh, I love it. I love it. The the career field of epidemiology as a as a game. You're learning. You're learning that it's not that easy to uh, work for the CDC. Exactly. <laughs> yes. No. It's it's not easy at all. And um, there are cards that uh, pop up that give you you like you win some grant money, and you're able to more effectively move toward production of a, a vaccine for one of the diseases. But other cards are called. Um, are they outbreak cards or, or they're just things that trigger it, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like I guess maybe they are outbreak cards, like they're outbreak card, like the outbreak deck. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, uh, that makes the diseases start popping up even faster. Um, yeah. It's, there's this level of like the, the bottom falls out in your belly where like when an outbreak happens at a location that's already on the precipice of, of the outbreak, it sort of sends out this chain reaction that like spreads to all of the surrounding countries. And that's the thing that's like super scary because it's not something like there's no containment. And that's part of the the theme. Like it just, it takes over so quickly. It's, I don't know. I, I, I kept thinking about like, uh, like, Captain Trips. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, the stand. <laughs> like, Don't Fear the Reaper was playing through my head. <laughs> but it is the kind of game where we, we wrapped up, we lost, and then for about half an hour or so while we were still hanging out, um, we were talking about the game and how it went and what we might have done in hindsight, but there's no way in the moment that you could have seen which path would have yeah. led you to the winning conditions. So anyway, if you're into board games at all and you like collaborative board games check out pandemic um it's a lot of fun cool yeah it's it's fun cool all right i'll bring us home guys 
my one thing is uh, it seems like I've had a handful of different uh, records as my one things this this uh, this season, but uh, I've been spinning uh, Yes's Relayer album, which nice. Josh and I went on uh-huh. went on a, a record hunting like a. Uh, secondhand book excursion a couple weeks ago and so i guess that's a testament to this album like i've been playing it a bunch uh so i have basically all of the yes up to this point save their 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 opening release which my understanding is that that's not super proggy that's that's kind of like working towards what yes is but i've got the the main chronology of the four or five albums that lead up to relayer. And I think that this one is kind of divisive in a lot of people's eyes, but man, I have to say, I, I didn't, I, I kind of bought it on the basis of the, the kick-ass like album art. So Roger Dean is the guy that did all the, the crazy yes album covers that you would recognize across their, their main releases. And it's, it's just a super cool, weird album cover with these like, I don't know, soapstone or like limestone hit like cliffs and stuff. And there's like some Mongols riding on horses and then there's giant snakes. It's, it's a, it's a really far out kind of proggy, proggy cover. And I didn't necessarily know if the music was going to like resonate with me the same way that the album art did, but it really does. It's, it's not quite as jazzy as I think what a lot of uh, critics or like critical reviews that you find online would lead you to believe and it's not quite as as inaccessible either it is pretty frenetic and it is pretty uh all over the place it just bounces around in contrast to some other other yes albums that came before it but it's still accessible and there are some really pretty melodies that underlay the whole album so I would say check it out yeah. if you're if you're into the proggy stuff. I mean, it's only three three tracks. I'm a, <laughs> Are you? Are you a big Yes fan? I'm a huge Yes fan, and especially that early period up to through Relayer, Battle at the Gates of Delirium is there you fantastic. Go. <laughs> it's so like, is that? I mean, is that heroic fantasy or what? It, it, so it's, so that's like si- that's side one. Relayer man. was Relayer was like almost a, a reaction against tales from topographic oceans yeah. which was uh, you know rick wakeman left because he thought tales from topographic oceans was just way too out there and so they brought in patrick Perez to play keyboards on relayer and i thought he did a splendid job so it's cool like i knew that they like either interviewed or talked to vangelis or something like this there are sections yeah. and there are bits of the keyboards in this like it sounds like the blade runner type of like wall 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 like sim- synthetic like synthetic sort of keyboard stuff but yeah. it's there's some badass guitar and drums it's just like i've become more and more a, a yes fan like the more i listen to their stuff i felt like uh tales from topographic oceans that's actually so that's the last album that i picked up before this one so i've kind of like been adding the latter latter good yes like <laughs> as i've encountered it and i thought that that yeah. album was a little bit wankery like there's whatever side one of the first the first uh uh record is i really love that uh but there's a lot of meandering this one i felt there's like it a was a bit tighter. Yeah. <laughs> this one's tighter <laughs> i still like the fragile and the yes album better because they're more guitar-y but this one i think is is gonna follow up and i think i might even like it better than like the the closer to the edge hmm. album too so yeah. i don't know it's good stuff there. You know, on I the yes it. album there's that uh song starship troopers yeah and yeah. um 
the 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 one that always gets me is there's a movement, and I can't remember if it's Starship Troopers or one of the movements is called Worm, uh-huh. and it's got this wonderful kind of relentless beat going on, and it's just I I get this vision in my head. Going back to Earthsea, I get this vision in my head of some kind of colossal dragon moving through the cosmos on planets and stuff. It's just it's amazing. So I think the, I think the song you can like tell that, that you can tell that I wasn't always listening to them in my everyday consciousness state. <laughs> <laughs> so so you say that Rusty and like the way that you're talking about that worm movement within that, that one song. Like there's a song on the fragile and I may have already talked about it on the podcast once, but there's a song that's called uh oh uh I want to make sure I get it right and don't screw it up. Because it's it's uh where are you at? I'm pulling it up here just because I don't want to don't want to screw anything. Oh, South Side of the Sky, and it's it's mm-hmm. this it's just that it is it is this crazy aggressive guitar and drums, and you just feel like you are part of this like Antarctic expedition, just like pushing and pushing. <laughs> Yeah. Try to just like make it uh, another kilometer, and, another kilometer. It's crazy. And in that one, they really put the they really put the rock in Prague there too. Yeah. It's, it's a really great rock song. It's heavy, man. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, we'll have to get, we'll have to get together sometime and just put on some yes sides and bliss out. We I'll are bring, down. I'll bring uh I'll bring I don't know I, I'm I'm not like a super cassette collector but I might have to like round up a. a some MP3 files of some yes and a little Bluetooth speaker. For I've got them. I've got them on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to have like a little uh, a little speaker to have to have something blasting out at a at at the, hotel room or something. Yeah. At the pavilion. <laughs> at the pavilion. There you go. Uh, we'd run everybody off of the pavilion. I yeah. think. <laughs> there are more heavy metal dudes down there. Yeah. We'll see. Right on. You can well, take them. That's a that's a that's a handful of one things. We'll wrap them all up. And what do we got? One. Wah, wah, wah. All right, guys. So enough of the. So we got about ten minutes about. left to talk about the story. No, oh, <laughs> no, no, we got all the time in the world. <laughs> We're good on time. We got uh, we got a cool one here to get into. This is a little bit longer than I think some of the other stories that we've been reading. So far, I almost said this semester, this season. We keep saying this semester, yeah. <laughs> this as semester. the word, yeah. You got, you guys are all college people. <laughs> <laughs> we've been, we've been uh, reading uh, a handful of not necessarily shorter stories, like, uh, but mid-sized. This one though was a series of, I almost want to say like, like vignettes or like like chapters all strung to ke- together to tell a much larger narrative and so so this story uh the sowers of the thunder i have here that it was published just singly in the winter 1932 issue of oriental stories okay that's i'm reading this off of like the delphi works of robert e howard which is like one of the the uh like it's a pdf or kindle collection that mm-hmm. i picked up on amazon that seems to be pretty good so that's that's how i was able to read the story does that seem right to you guys that's yeah that's what i understand too okay. of course the best way to read it is in the del rey sword woman and other historical there adventures you know. but hey. so that's that's <laughs> uh, as it turns out he said oh and so <laughs> john's got Lord of Samarkand. Yeah. yeah so is that what you picked up the last howard days john yes it is and it has an inscription from our guest inside to john more fodder for the Chromecast. in my opinion some of bob's best writing 
Rusty Burke. <laughs> awesome. How did you read it this time around, Rusty? How did I yeah, read like, the story? Yeah, yeah. Did you have a specific edition? I am always, you know, I've talked with people, I've told people this. I've done, I've edited Howard's stories over and over and over again. I've been through them over and over and again, going through the manuscript, you know, well, either the weird, weird tales, oriental stories or whatever, the manuscripts, checking them against the galleys. I have read these stories so many times and I always get caught up in them. <laughs> <laughs> It's like they never get boring. And going through the story again, I mean, how many times have I read Sowers of the Thunder and going through in awe sometimes of his use of words, you know, just his ability to turn a phrase, his ability to, in a paragraph, give you as much action as some of his heroes like Jeffrey Farnell or Walter Scott give you in a whole book, mm-hmm. you know, and he's doing it. He's Man, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> the action sto- scenes in Sowers are just amazing, aren't they? Yeah, and I think I, I think the thing that I like the most about uh, this story was like the sense of uh, I don't want to say the sense of the ominous, but like the ominous feel, like the the feeling that you get at the end of a, of the chapters that like as things unspool, like the very first chapter, it ends like with their, like the javelin breaks and they, that's, that's a, like a a symbol of, of, of ill tidings in the future. And you know that those dudes are going to come back around, right? If you've read any of these stories, you know, it's, it's the, it's the noir, like train crash that you see coming and you're just like really interested to see how horrible it's all going to (laughs) be. Uh, and so that in like that that first chapter that first vignette ends on a very sort of ominous note and that comes back around like those kinds of feelings whether it's like the interactions of a couple dudes as they're they're getting drunk at a bar like by happenstance or it's like battles with with many many casualties and and death and blood and thunder all around yeah i i liked that um we get these two characters that are running along a parallel track and, and they are fairly uh, equal to one another. Um, and each has various advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you find out the true identity of uh, the companion, the, the guy that uh, uh, our hero spends time with at the beginning in the bar, it, it, I don't know. I, I didn't see it coming. And so to me, it was kind of an exciting reveal. I'm not sure. The first time I read the story, I may have felt the same way that, that, yeah, it's, whoa, it's the guy that he's been talking about. He's not a servant of Bybars. He is Bybars. Right. But, uh, um, you know, in one of Howard's uh, letters, he talks about how the readers had taken him to task. I think it was the story Hawks of Utremer, um, where they had taken him to task for saying that Muslims drank. You know, he had Muslims drinking, and of course, the Quran prohibits that. Mm-hmm. And Farnsworth Wright had written a very detailed letter or answer in the in the Irie about about it. In this story, Howard makes it clear up front: yeah, these guys are drinkers. They're sure they're on the face of it; they're Muslims, but they drink. Well, Howard was quite familiar with the idea that. 
drinking is prohibited, but we drink anyway. Because mm-hmm. Cross Plains was dry during Prohibition most right. of the time. And I think he does a good job of talking and yet, about And yet he, yeah. could, he could go out and get a beer or find some liquor somewhere. Yeah, I like how he uh, is able to paint the picture of uh, Bahiras. Is, is that how we w- maybe want to say his his name? Like he's an outlier within the, you know, within the within the the Muslim fold that he's that he's part of, right? Like he, <laughs> like that character yeah. is an is an outcast. It's or not an oh, outcast, he certainly but, is because yeah, he's actually a he's actually a Tatar. Right. He's exceptional. So he's, Maybe that's the way to say it. Like exceptional in his independence and his just, you know, uh, up by your bootstraps, Howardian, badass hero, mm-hmm. anti-hero yeah. kind of perspective. Yeah. He's, he's part of the Mamluks, right? Is that sort of what we gather? Is that He's part of this large mercenary force. The slave. he's the leader. He's the leader of the Mamluks. Um, he was the son of uh, Subutai, who was mm-hmm. one of Genghis Khan's lieutenants. Good old Subutai. And then he was then he was sold into slavery and was picked up by somebody who you know trained him in the arts of war or whatever. And right. So yeah, he's he's risen to the position of being general of the sultan of egypt's uh the memluks are like mercenaries in the service of the sultan of egypt it's kind of an amazing group to to read about because after this reading through this story i went down a bit of a rabbit hole just to read that there was this huge slave mercenary army for the sultanate of egypt and they were like this is totally cool this will always work this will never backfire (laughs) and eventually Baibar and the Mamluks rise up and they found their own dynasty that rules over Egypt. It's this amazing, uh, to me, amazingly obvious turn in history where it's like, oh, our slave army outnumbers us by the thousands. This will surely be fine. (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) This is just a brief aside, but if you want to read a great story that's set in Egypt, um, with a guy who's commanding a uh, an army of mercenaries, read Scott Odin's uh, Men of Bronze. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Okay. Fantastic. Is that uh, is that more recent or is that latter material? It's an old. It's an older book. It's one of Scott's. I think Scott's first book. Okay. It's terrific. It, it's the protagonist in that Hasdrubal Barca is one of the baddest asses you're ever going to run across. <laughs> and and the, when it gets into the, you know, how uh, Northerners go ber- get into the berserker mode. Well, and he gets into he, when the beast comes forward, Hasdrubal can't be beaten. You know, but I won't go off on that too much. Oh, that, I'm intrigued now. <laughs> a little, little promotion for my buddy Scott. Cool. And so what's Scott's last name again? Say that again. Odin, O-D-E-N. Yeah, he uh, he wrote the the intro to the. He has two. He has both of his eyes still. But <laughs> I think he does have ravens on either shoulder. Uh, he wrote the intro to the Sword Woman and other historical adventures. Oh, cool! Yes, I asked him to do that because I think he's one of the greatest writers of historical fiction out there, and now he's writing more purely fantasy. But I, I hope he'll get back into some historical stuff too. 
Awesome, awesome. All right, so, so let's let the stage here. All right, set it up, dude. What's happening? Set it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we Go got Kay Hall, who is a deposed Irish king, who is in the the I guess the Crusader states. What'd you call him before? Out Outremer. I don't know how to Outre- pronounce Outremer. It's, it's French. It's, That's French. It's, Beyond beyond the seas, it's uh-huh. it's outre mer. If you've listened and to the Patrice, podcast, Patrice, before, Lu- Patrice Louine is going to give me all <laughs> kinds of crap about my pronunciation. But if you've listened the to the show before, you know French is, is, a, is a blind spot for us. <laughs> In Kentucky, we would probably call it outremer. Well, let's be honest. The hawks of outremer. Actually, yeah. actually, I I have heard that put forward on you know some of these internet sites that say you know here's how to pronounce this. Mm-hmm. I've heard that actually put forth as the English pronunciation. I'm like, no, that's not correct at all. <laughs> so it's not we're out Reamer, it's Uttermer. We're here in Uttermer, and Cahal is he is drinking. It's a hard drinking night, and they end up drinking some mare's milk. He meets a traveler by the name of what's his uh, Haroon is what Haroon. he's doing. And he and Cahal are going to drink some mare's milk. They get so drunk that they hit each other in the head really hard. <laughs> and it sets up Cahal to say, well, I guess I've done all I can do here in Cairo. I'm going to take off and have some adventures out in the outer colonies and see what I can do in terms of making some money or hooking up with some other Christian people. Is that a fair enough way of setting the story up? Yeah, yeah. That's it. Fair so, enough. so to- at this time, at this time in Ultramar, uh, the Christian kingdoms from the, all the previous Crusades are kind of fragmented. They're, they, they have. This is you see this on all. Of, if you put, if you read all of Howard's stories, he gives you a lot of this uh, because he got it all from Harold Lamb. But these little Christian kingdoms have warred against each other so much that they really don't have a tremendous amount of strength. And so they're beleaguered by all of the Muslim forces around them. So they're holding on to little tiny fiefdoms throughout the Middle East. And he's just – I think he's looking for somebody to go sell his sword to. Yeah, I love this, that you get the uh, – like the uh, the description of, of the, you know, the small castle that the knight's holding that's – you know, beleaguered is the term that, that you use there, Rusty. Like, it just seems so, like, almost like a Rust Belt town. Like, things have gone to seed. The moats filled yeah. in. There's, like, decrepitude everywhere. Like, these these Christians that have come here are, uh, like, it, the, it's towards the end of the, 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 the lifespan of, of that, like, culture, it seems like, on the landscape here. Yeah. And even we, as we find out, even in Jerusalem, which you would think this is the city that the Crusaders would want to combine their forces and to really build it up and fortify it, and they've let it go to seed. They've let the defenses fall apart and haven't really done anything with them because of the internecine uh, feuding and, and po- political backstabbing among all the Christian princes. So uh – John, in terms of like how the story moves forward, I know we've kind of been talking about our our favorite things over the course of the season, like with these stories, like you know we've got seven different chapters I think here, but but maybe let's 
move things along and let get to uh, some of the high points across the various chapters because it seems like we've talked about the first chapter. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Cool. Totally. So, You're driving the bus, dude. <laughs> I'm trying to drive, but uh, so so the, the next couple of chapters, like, does anybody want to kind of take the take the lead here? If anything stood out to them and and hit on some high points that sort of play out. Well, I would say just this whole this legend of Baybar, Baybar, that's kind of weaved through the whole tale. Who where he's not the main character, but he might as well be. Where we get in chapter two, it talks about he can break a man's spine with his his one hand he can eat a whole sheep in one sitting and <laughs> he just keeps hearing more and more about this guy and he is contrasted with the threat from the east of the mongol warriors the the others that might come down from the hills with their arrows and the bows and try and take over from that direction so i just like this rock in a hard place sort of scenario that's set up where these christian kingdoms like rusty has said they're very beleaguered and they're doomed like no nobody's going to make it out of this alive so just this mood that runs through the whole thing which seems very irish to me as well which is like it's all terrible anyway let's just let's fight until we die (laughs) and and it's that whole you know the, the 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 barbarian must always triumph notion that we've seen a handful of times at least in howard's stories right um Here's, here's a passage that I think is that really reflects that whole Howard rising and falling civilizations idea. It says, uh, and he dreamed deep, dim dreams of those old days when men first rode from the West, strong with faith and eager with zeal to found a kingdom of God. Now men cut their neighbors' throats in the West and cried out beneath the heels of ambitious kings and greedy popes, and in their wars and cryings out forgot that thin frontier where the remnants of a fading glory clung to their slender boundaries. I mean, that's just so good. That's Howard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They came here, going to build this thing, and now they just let it. They let it fall apart because they couldn't stop fighting each other. Mm-hmm. I was also wondering, this is maybe a little out there, but Luke, you mentioned the sense of inevitability and, um, are you guys familiar with the, the handful of episodes of star Trek, the next generation when the Borg are showing up and they are just marching through the Federation planets and just carving their way through them like a hot knife through butter. And they're making their way toward earth. You, You know, the, the episodes I'm talking about, are they the ones who are? Are they the ones who are going to assimilate you? Yeah, those are the the computer people who are going to assimilate everybody, and they're they're just unstoppable and and they're like they're like termites or ants or something. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. And it's this feeling of just inevitability, but the Federation keeps fighting no matter what, right? Like they 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 right. blow up ships and and do whatever they can to to stymie the progress, and and that's. I don't know why, but that's kind of the feeling that I had here is that the, the, the Mongols are coming, they're coming Mm -hmm. and we have Kahal rushing ahead of them, like riding horses to death, trying to reach each outpost and warn them so that maybe their progress can be slowed. And I don't know that, that sense of inevitable uh, destruction at the hands of the barbarians was something that I really liked. Yeah, I mean, this in a way is is um, Howard and just like Tolkien, it's the northern thing of we're going, we know we're going to go down to defeat, but we're going to fight anyway. 
in the end, you know, the Norse, uh, you know, they knew it's all headed for Ragnarok. We're, we're going down, but they were going to fight going down. So, and you know, Howard's full of that. If you look, Brand McMorn is the great one. <laughs> but it's all, you know, in the face of inevitable destruction, I'm going to fight. So, with I, I, I struggled with this as I was finishing up the story last night, sort of thinking about how much of a comparison there is here, but just the feeling that I had as I was reading the, the final bits of the story. I mean, it, I, I want to mention it here because it seems like we're hitting on a lot of the same themes. Like, at least in the war film, like Apocalypse Now, like the story or the device is different in that uh, it's kind of a fetch quest to go like take care of Kurtz. Like that's what's playing out in that sort of like heart heart of darkness kind of reincarnation. But I think a, a lot of the feel the feelings that I had whenever I watch Apocalypse Now it's kind of the same things that come across here, like the inevitability and this, this, the civilization barbarism kind of thing. I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the deep history of either the crusades or the Vietnam war to like be able to make the one-to-one comparisons here. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there's a lot of that. That's, that's at at play here. The way that, uh, Babars is not necessarily human. He almost is, is superhuman to our protagonist the same way that oh, I can't remember Martin Sheen's character, but going up against like Brando, like the way when he finally encounters Kurtz, the way that things play out. Like, I don't know. It, it seems like there's some connection there, like with the feeling of inevitability and just infinite like sadness and <laughs> that kind of Irish mood yeah. that permeates the story here. This seems to be a doomed ending to, uh, to a war or to a series of conflicts that we're witnessing here. Like that's the, that's the take home message. Yeah. You almost get the sense from the very introduction of Gahal that, um, he's doomed, that he's doomed that, you know, he's, been shoved aside he's lost his kingdom and and now he's wandering aimlessly and it's too bad for him that he has to go up against babar he said even babar says come fret not is but it is but your misfortune to oppose me and my destiny (laughs) men are my tools at the damascus gate i knew those red-handed riders were steel to forge into a moslem sword by all if you could have seen me riding like the wind into egypt Marching back across the Jafar without passing to rest, pausing to rest. He's just—he is the wind. He is the tiger force. Did you see? Yeah. Did you see shades of um, the uh, the movie Three Hundred? <laughs> I, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah the Xerxes is a kind, a benevolent guy. <laughs> yeah, you will find I am kind. It, yeah, it's it's this uh, irresistible force meeting on immovable object and what happens at the end uh i think is is you know it's the only thing that could have happened yeah it's poetic and it's sad it's just so i don't know like so so tragic right like this Mm -hmm. is pure sort of tragedy between these two minute minute arms these brothers these you know brothers at arms here like how things 
play out. I, so, so what? Are, go ahead, Rusty. I kind of think that I kind of think that the greatest tragedy at the end is that they brought in Eleanor to Corsi. <laughs> <laughs> if well, it's you know, her. if we if we left her out, it would have been a great story. But that was sappy at the end there. A little, yeah. Until yeah, yeah. you know she does, and then, and then and then it's back to uh, Kyle and and Bybars, and man, it's back to great action. It, it did seem as though that scene did not really impact anything to me. Like they didn't alter the the course of the story in in a substantial way. At that point, right. he got closure. It almost yeah. feels like yeah. I mean, it almost feels like though that. Howard's thinking, oh, well, Farnsworth's going to want me to put some romance in here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would say, like, that point in the story, it really, like, at that point you move into the dream state, right? It's hard to disassociate, like, you can't necessarily distinguish uh, the real versus the the fever dream of death that's setting in. And so (laughs) that encounter really hammered that home maybe almost in a ham-fisted kind of way i think you could have got at it otherwise if you would have seen valkyries landing down or something yeah. <laughs> something some other symbols to to sort of signal that the end is is nigh uh but i don't know i, just, it, it I kind well of enough. feel like that's a that's a very adolescent view of romance or something that it's uh you know you i don't know about you guys when i was a teenager i remember occasionally thinking they're gonna you know, um, something's going to happen to me and then they'll regret it. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and that's kind of the feeling that I got from that scene was like, you know, oh, well, of course she regretted having treated, you know, she was the prom queen and she regretted having rejected me. I mean, that's, that's a good point. That's, I think that's spot on. Like mm-hmm. that points a little bit to the, I don't know, like the, more juvenile if, aspect of if that, I were the, it. If I were the sort of uh, of uh, editor that some people have been, I would have ripped all of that out of the story and, and left a really lean, mean fighting machine. Because it, it, like Josh said, it doesn't do anything for the story. The whole math night thing and Eleanor, it doesn't do a thing. I kind of like what Luke was saying, though, about maybe, maybe it's not real. Like maybe he's imagining the whole ah, thing. Okay. I mean, I think I think that it ultimately except is that he's real. seen her on he's seen her on the yeah. road. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, it's, I'm saying he's maybe uh, if I were going to well, play out Luke's head cannon here, yeah. it would okay, be he's seen her on the road, but now he's he's uh, imagining that the masked knight was actually Eleanor. Project yeah, exactly. Yeah, like projecting he had this that inkling of knowledge when he saw. The vast okay, night, well, and now his brain is saying, "Oh yeah, it's actually that girl you love." Yeah, I'm not. I'm not advocating that. That's actually like was Howard's intent, but that's kind <laughs> well, of the the dreamy that would work better feel. For me. I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and adopt that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it just it struck me when I was reading that I'm like, oh, this guy, he is on death's door and it's coming, and so maybe I'm just pre-programmed here in 2019 to like to be. Uh, to, to see that kind of uh, narrative device play out. But that's mm-hmm. kind of how it struck me. Well, we see similar things in, in other media, right? Like, uh, think about Gladiator, and at the end... I mean, absolutely. When, that's exactly what was playing in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I am Maximus Decimus Meridius. God, yes. you're going to make me tear up, dude. <laughs> well, dude, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Manly, manly tears. That's, uh, yeah, that's right. That, oh, man. That the is, saltiest tears. Just, I don't know what it is about, like, uh, 
the 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 waving like field of grain and just the 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 wind. It's just and, and his wife calling him home. Yeah, yeah. We we've drifted into another story. Oh, this, this <laughs> level of like dark Irish melancholy that has settled upon me. Uh, you know, it, it <laughs> that that interpretation doesn't fit neatly, but neither does her just showing up to tell him. Oh, I felt bad, so I came to look for you, and now I'm dead. Yeah. You know, it it works, I think, in a, a much more emotional, uh, emotionally resonant way. I'm the most emo. You are. <laughs> you are the most emo. <laughs> uh, I wanted to mention a couple of lines from uh, Bybar that I thought were just the, the best. And <laughs> this is uh, the scene where Cahal and... and Bybar have finally recognized one another and acknowledged, you know, one another's true identities, uh-huh. right? Um, and Bybar is is letting him know uh, this is my evil plan. In the in the <laughs> in the Delray, this is on page two eighty. Um, I will, and this is Bybar talking. I will cleanse the mosques. I by Allah, uh, the Karesmians shall do the work most piously. They'll make good Muslims and winged warmen. With them I sow the thunder. Who reaps the tempest? Holy crap. Um, <laughs> he, go, he goes on. Um, this is on the, the next page. Uh, let's see if I can find it real quick. Okay. Um, Battles and the corpses of men are stairs whereby I climb to fame. Each war I win clinches my hold on power. Now the Franks stand in my path. I will brush them aside. But the shaman prophesized a strange thing, that a dead man's sword will deal me a grievous hurt when the Franks come up against us. Um, that first part about climbing this ladder, um, I keep making references to other properties, but I just feel like I feel like the uh, people who adapted the Game of Thrones TV show, mm-hmm. Littlefinger's famous scene where he talks about chaos being a ladder and you just climb the dead bodies and don't worry about what's beneath you. Yeah. I mean, that's that's this, right? Um, oh, I don't this kn- has been my guiding motto throughout my career. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're at the top. <laughs> that explains all those skulls on your uh, shelves behind you, too. Yeah. <laughs> and his goblet that he's been drinking his Jameson out of. That's right. I was kind of curious. Did you? Did any of you get a feeling of comparison between this story and the Twilight of the Gray Gods or Spears of Klontarf? I think we called it when we did the story a couple years ago. Well, the Twilight of the Gray God is the Spears, is Spears of Klontarf rewritten with more of a sort of supernatural fantasy element. Okay. And then later he rewrote it, sort of took some of that, and he turned it into um, the Karen on the head. The Karen on the head. sold. Right. I think that's uh, the one that we've that's read. That's the one we did. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the whole this story, and in fact, all of his Crusader stories, um, and this is why I say it's, I feel like it's some of his best writing. This is when Howard is has got that Irish thing really going. Um, <laughs> He spent several years like learning to be Irish or, you know, a couple of years learning to be Irish, reading a lot of Irish stuff, mythology, legend, writers like Don Byrne. And you can catch some of it in just the there's an Irishness to the diction in a lot of these stories Uh, and that darkness, that that 
again, that sense, like you said, of the inevitability of we're going to lose, but we're going to fight anyway. Um, that was the history of Ireland from the English invasion on, right? Right. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, yeah. hey, guys, we're going to have another rising. All right, well, we're going to lose, but let's get the pikes out and <laughs> get the, you know, grab a bottle of whiskey and go after the Sassanach. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, it's, but yeah, it's, it, these stories are, you know, one wants to say they're kind of dark in the sense that there is that sense of doom hanging over them, but there's, they're heroic, you know, mm-hmm. the, the protagonist never gives up the most relentless, I think, I mean, the absolute pinnacle of relentlessness is in Lion of Tiberius, and that's not an Irish character. That's John Norwald, who's uh, trying to remember he, what they call. Him. He's a he's a Briton, so he's not a he's not a Saxon Englishman. He's a I think he's a Briton um, who, um, if you recall that, if you've read that story, he's. Um, accompanying this young Muslim prince, and he, the prince is killed by the by the villain. I think it's Bayezid, uh, right next to him, and he tries to uh, defend him, but he's captured and he's put in the in the slave galleys for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden here he is, he's back like this ghost, avenging ghost. I mean, that guy to me is. Mr. Relentless. <laughs> Read that story. <laughs> Lion of Tiberius. Cool. I I just want I would love to have done a collection that was just these sort of what everybody calls the crusader stories. Because I, I really do think this is Howard at his very best. It's got everything about him that's good. So so maybe uh maybe this is a good segue, like we can we can push uh the story for the, the session a little bit to the side and sort of segue towards a synthesis of what we were talking about the season, which is like the road East and, uh, maybe, uh, move towards, towards that. Is, would that be okay guys? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And one question that just popped into my head when you were talking rusty is, um, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, Harold Lamb, Talbot Mundy are highly influential in Howard's writing, uh, at least in terms of these uh, adventure tales that we've been focusing on, the, the El Borak and, and this story in particular, you can see it. Um, are there any other influences in terms of Howard's adventure writing uh, or, or his even his crusader stories that we really haven't touched on yet that you think are, are as important or maybe even more important? No, no, I don't think so. There's a few, you know, minor ones that are more for the research that went behind, you know, going on behind them. Um, but no, I think, I think lamb and Monday are your two, the big ones, major influences on these, but of course he assimilated them. Right, um, and then he um, condensed it. If I mean, I love Harold Lamb, but he's wordier than Howard. Howard, 
takes three pages of lamb and condenses it into a paragraph. <laughs> and that's, but that's what he does with everything that he writes is, you know, you guys have read enough Howard. Yeah. <laughs> everything is like, you look at his, at his, the influences and then you say, yeah, but Howard just scrunched it down until right. was, he got the very essence of it. Um, his battle scenes are just, uh, there's just no comparison with anybody. he, marshals these entire, huge armies and in two pages he's had this enormous battle that's just you know killed thousands of people and he's described the movements of these great armies um the but of course he always comes down to he's describing the movements and then he comes down to the individual combats mm-hmm. right and that's where he really shines so i guess i have a, a another question that i was thinking of too as we were as we were dealing with the uh, the the sowers of the thunder here at the like towards the end there, and I guess my question for you, uh, Rusty, is you know we've read Elborak stories, which are kind of dealing with the Afghanistan uh, scene and a different suite of historical players and a different feel. Like very much, those stories are about revenge. And the story yeah. that we've encountered here is more about crusaders and the fatalism of, of, of the end of that story. Are those the two main sort of like Eastern historical suites of stories that, that Howard yeah. put together? Or are we missing anything? Like, is there another, another sort of avenue that we haven't looked towards that we're, that we're missing here in terms of Eastern stories? No, I mean, the only other things that I can think of, um, you've probably, I mean, you're considering, I'm sure, um, uh, oh, come on. The story with Red Sonja in it. Oh, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Shadow of the Vulture, is that? Yeah. Shadow of the Vulture. You're considering that as an Eastern story. And then well, we, just ha- we didn't shift talk a little about, bit. Yeah, we didn't talk about it here for this season, but we have previously hit on Red Sonja. So, uh, but well, that, that bears this, mentioning that story. That of course, you have Suleiman, yeah, right, to the gates of Europe. Well, the Black Stone is right. sort of takes that as its historical background. So, yeah, you've got a little bit of it spilling over into a, into a horror quote, horror story. Cool. Um, but no, I think for the most part, if you got to, you know, when you deal with the crusader stories and the Alborak stories, you've got Howard's, um, middle Eastern, near Eastern stuff. Now far Eastern gets in, gets us into the yellow peril. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different. So genre. skull face is that, would that fall into that category? I would say, yeah, that's in, it's in that category. And then some of his uh, Steve Harrison stories. And mm-hmm. actually, even a couple of the Steve Costigan stories where was, he's was, off in New York. I was about to say, yeah, kind, of, right. kind of the the funny end of things might be the boxing stories that we've talked about with Costigan way out, way out, <laughs> out east yeah. doing things there. And he's in the, okay. you know, he's in the east. He's in Singapore. Yeah. And yeah. Places like that. So, the um, Killa from Manila. What else? <laughs> this, this, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not that's not a that, that wasn't no, no that was something else that was that was another thing the thrill of, of manila was uh muhammad ali and uh <laughs> but, some other <laughs> i can't remember who it was 
Who was he fighting in the thriller from Manila? Was that was Frazier? It, was it not Frazier? I, I was thinking that it was. Might have been. I was thinking that was. Uh, we, need, we need we need Chris Gruber for that. We do. Oh, he Frazier. Was it one or two? <laughs> was it the first bout or the rematch? Uh, that I don't know. Okay, but yeah, the third Frazier. and final boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Right. Here you go, the Sorry. thriller. <laughs> Sorry to uh, to derail us. I was trying to make the. <laughs> I was trying to go with Slayer, but Slayer of Malaysia, but Slayer. I couldn't quite couldn't make do it work. It. So I, I I backed up to the the <laughs> Slayer of the Himalaya. <laughs> oh, you just did it. Thanks. There you go. I, <laughs> I don't know what I did. <laughs> You, you, made, you well. made rhymes. <laughs> you made better rhymes. Um, <laughs> so as far as the El Borak stories, Rusty, we covered uh, the blood of the gods, the daughter of Erlik Khan. And mm. what was the other one, John? Hawk Please tell me you did. Yeah, you did Hawk of the Hills. Hawk of the Hills. Yeah, that's 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 my favorite. OK, that, story. that was my question. Yeah, that's just fantastic. Yeah. OK was wondering we i think we tended to like the blood of the gods a little bit more i like the the last one the hawk of the hills the best okay. or no way no wait blood of the gods was the last one yeah. i did like the, the the best yeah yeah so so you opt for uh hawk of the hills though Rest yeah of i think hawk of the hills is is one is one of the ones that i included in the best of i just it's just i don't know it's got a little bit of everything you want mm-hmm. and i, I kind of liked that it was a little dig at Talbot Mundy. Yeah. Because the, the British, uh, guy who's, uh, attempt at mediation is cl- clearly not working. Yeah. He's, I think is, uh, is Ethel Stan King of the, of the when, King of the Kyber rifles or whatever. Okay. Mundy's story. Yeah. I think that's Howard saying, Hey, you know, these people aren't going to sit down and just listen to reason. You're going to have to deal with them. Yeah. And that character in that story was a patsy through and through. Pretty much. Yeah. He had to be rescued by El Borak. Um, One of the things we talked about in regard to El Borak was uh, his relationship to some of Howard's other characters, in particular Conan. And in that story in particular, uh, the Hawk of the Hills, El Borak does a lot of manipulation, especially of the English guy. And, yeah. and I was thinking back to Conan and, and in particular, the, the road of Kings poem where he talks about, you know, what do I know about the, the guilt, the craft and the lie. Um, right. Conan, Conan is a very straightforward and forthright character versus Borak who, who seems to kind of pull the strings uh, do you, do you think that there are more similarities or differences between those two characters or, or am I missing oh, yeah. the mark there? I mean, if you, if you really start looking into it, Conan pulls the strings a lot. Um, the black stranger, which Bill Cavalier hates is my, is one of my favorite Howard stories in the sense that not so much for the way it's written, but just in the sense that Conan is seen as the chess master here. He's, moving the pieces around the way he wants them to go. He never sees in the black stranger. He never sees that the uh, opposition is not who he thinks it is, that Mm. there's actually somebody behind the picks too. 
but he's moving the he's moving those pirates around like chess pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the stuff where he's in Africa, you know, anything where he's in a leadership position, Conan's pretty clearly a guy who's adept at manipulating people to get him to do what he wants. Okay. I mean, that's a leadership thing. Is it's what leaders do. They get people to do things that they might not necessarily want to do. Mm-hmm. As long as you can keep the poets quiet. Right. You've seen that in your classes, I'm sure. Keep, keep, <laughs> identify the poets in your class and keep them quiet. And everybody right. else will go on. <laughs> <laughs> That's the liberal arts, isn't it? <laughs> you got to watch the English majors. Yeah. They're devious. But no, I, I do think that um, there are elements of Conan there, because he's come out of he's coming out of Conan and into Elborak, so Elborak is naturally going to take on some aspects of Conan because he's an outgrowth of right. what Howard has learned in writing Conan stories. One of the interesting things about Borak to me is that, uh, from what I've from what I understand. Uh, El Borak was one of those characters that Howard kind of conceived of in some way or another early on, high school age. Oh, he, yeah. He was in his early teens, he said, when he conceived of El Borak. Um, have you read any of the earlier El Borak stuff? Nope. The, collect- the foundation collected it into a book of early El Borak stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's a completely different character in a way. It's a, uh, Elberak in those stories has sort of a background as a, he's been a Texas gunslinger, but he's really much more sophisticated and urbane than the later character is. Okay. Like, uh, like a Doc Holliday. He's he's almost more like James Bond. James Bond. Okay. Yeah. He's got this sophisticated manner. He's been, you know, he's been in the cities of the world and he's dealt with people in, you know, European kings and princes and stuff. He's much more man of the world than the later Elberach. Um, Jim Keegan had asked me about that when he was uh, illustrating the Elberach stories. He noted that I had noticed that I had said something about, uh, Elberak was a Texas gunslinger who had gone native in the Near East. And he was like, well, you know, I've been illustrating him with a, you know, Western clothes and stuff. And I'm like, I don't mean gone native in that way. I just mean that he's discovered that he and these people have a lot in common mm-hmm. internally, you know, that, that he is very much like them. Right. And that's Conan, you know, everywhere Conan goes, that's, that's Conan, isn't it? He's found that that as long as he stays centered in who he is, he can get along anywhere. I mean, that's the cool thing about Conan is that he is like the outsider, the perpetual outsider. But he's also kind of the everyman who can like he's he's the ultimate outsider. (laughs) But he can come in and survive in yours. He can come in and survive in your home territory and in your home territory and in yours. It doesn't matter whose home territory we're talking about. Conan will survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He can navigate those 
uh, uh, various uh, channels within any given situation. It's pretty cool. Right. He's he's Betty and Veronica. He he is both Betty and Veronica. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> he's he's all of the Golden Girls all at once. <laughs> Luke, you Luke, you come up with the most spot on analogy. <laughs> I'll dr- toast, sir. Good job. Thanks. Uh, um, I wanted to ask Betty and Veronica. <laughs> I wanted to ask about Howard's place in terms of this pantheon of adventure riders, you know, we've, we've mentioned Kipling, we've mentioned Mundy, um, you know, lamb and, and various others. How, you know, Howard, I think from, from the outside perspective is known mostly for Conan and then more broadly for sword and sorcery. How would you rate him amongst the pantheon of adventure riders, Rusty? Yeah, I think it's a shame that he's mostly known just for for that one part of his output when he wrote so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would rank him at the very top. I would you know he name an adventure writer. You know your Kipling's, your Talbot Mundy's, your Harold Lambs, your um, who else is a great adventure writer. Um, Howard takes all of them and he just condenses it down to its essence. Um, I don't think anybody for economy of language and economy of, uh, what do I want to say? Um, just (laughs) excitement and adventure. I mean, he just pushes it out. I've always said Howard grabs you by the, by the collar drags you in in the first paragraph. His first paragraphs beat just about any writer I've ever seen. He pulls you physically into that story, and at the end of it, you come up going, whoa, that was quite a ride. Yeah. <laughs> You've almost lost consciousness of how long it took you to read that story. And like I said, when I've been editing these stories, I get sucked into them. The next thing I know, I'm reading the story instead of, paying attention to the words. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, uh, uh, an author we didn't cover this season, but we've talked about previously is H. Ryder Haggard. Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so on the basis of talking about Lamb and Mundy and Howard, I think Haggard would also be somebody to talk about here. Yeah, he would also, absolutely, yeah. It seemed, I mean, and it's a small sample size, but with Haggard, there was more of the one-on-one uh, visceral feel and also like the high romance that I think you get with some of the Howard stories. Like specifically, I can think about the stuff in Haggard and make mm. a comparison to what we read with the, uh, uh, the blood of the gods, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like those, that, that seems very much of a piece, like that, that high adventure and the, the chase and the, the, the caravan and the moving on and like the adventuring that we read with she and, or, or, you know, covered with she. So I think there's a comparison there. I mean, I really did like Harold Lamb's depiction of, uh, Cleet the Cossack. Like he's, he's a cool dude. (laughs) Like that character is neat and he's kind of a kind of, he was refreshing to read, but I agree that like those stories were not necessarily as, as tightly wound and, and the writing was not as uh, just 
dynamic as as what we get, get yeah. with the El Borac stories. And I would think like just now, just like recalling the Haggard material, mm-hmm. kind of that comparison. It too. doesn't move. It just doesn't move like a Howard story does. Yeah, I would I would say those right Haggard, especially. I mean, golly, that guy was inventive as hell. Mm-hmm. He essentially created these things like the lost world romance right. and stuff. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was very inventive, but Victorian literature is like that. It's very expansive. It's very leisurely paced. Um, sentences can go on for two or three days, <laughs> you know, and Howard doesn't do that. Howard's like, let's get right to business. Let's move into the story. And Larry Richter was really spot on in, the least of Robert E. Howard, where he talked about how Howard, that economy of, of words was thrown out there. He used these, uh, what Fritz Leiber called the words of power, like black, gray, grim, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Use these because he wanted to let you fill in all the blanks and just let him keep the story moving. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people identify so strongly with Howard's stories that they can't accept the way you would illustrate it or somebody else, you know, they can't accept your way of thinking about it because by golly, they had their own, they, they filled in the blanks their way. Mm-hmm. You know, That's they cool. saw this instead of this. I don't, I don't recall us using or, or coming across like Liber's reference to that, like words of power. Do you guys? Uh, no, I remember. That's, so- that's in, uh, there's an essay that uh, Don Heron actually cobbled it together from Fritz did a lot of reviews of Howard books in Amra. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And Don took it and Don Heron took it and cobbled them together into an, a single essay in his, that 1984 dark barbarian book. Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, essays about Howard. Yep. And again, I'd have to see if I could find it. The, uh, I don't recall exactly what the title was, but it's in the Dark Barbarian. Okay. The, the Don Heron collection, the first Don Heron mm-hmm. collection of essays. Um, and Fritz talks about how Howard used what he called the words and phrases of power. I mean, that's, that's, but, that's, but they're the things that cause people to sometimes look at him. Critics look at him and go, oh, well, he's using these cliches. Well, they're not cliches, they're intended to let you fill in mm-hmm. the details. I think that's so some that of the beauty. The that's the beauty of like the uh, of the archetype or like the broad strokes, right? Like, yeah, it just right. it allows for enough for the, the the reader to go with. And I mean, in this story, and the and the Swords of the Thunder, how many times in the story does he say that somebody broke free into the freedom of the desert? And <laughs> He doesn't describe the damn desert. He doesn't go on for a couple of pages about all the vegetation or lack thereof and what the mm-hmm. sands look like and stuff. He said the freedom of the desert. And let's move on to the next paragraph. Yeah. Let's go. Let's keep this thing moving. God, this story moves. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. It, it is at a clip. Um, and this is one of his almost, this is almost, uh, one of his great. This is certainly one of his greatest kitchen sink stories. He's got a little bit of everything in there. Would he you, gets tired of he gets tired of one scene. He'll just throw another one at you. Would you feel comfortable 
handing the story to somebody who had never read Howard and saying, okay, read this and see what you think. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. Any of it, any of these crusader stories, pretty much I would, I would be comfortable handing to somebody and say, read this. And if you don't like this, you're not going to like Robert E. Howard. Well, so, so I might, I might push back on that a little bit rusty, just in terms of my own, my own opinion. Like one of the things that I thought about as I was reading, the the story. Well, you tell today. me that at our day. <laughs> <laughs> he's tell, tell it to your face. He's, he's got look. Rusty has a hide advantage, but if Luke gets it in on you, buddy, it's, I'm it's a, over. I'm a Wolverine. I'm close to the ground, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, Gru- no. Gruber can officiate. <laughs> but my but my my I guess my my fear would be like this type of story. We've seen these types of narratives multiple times over our readings for the podcast where it's uh, vignettes in time that sort of jump the plot along. It's not hard to like follow the plot, but it's not necessarily as accessible as a single protagonist and you're tracking that person through like a more consistent like time interval. And so I'm thinking about the blood of the gods, like the story that we read previously. I really did like that story because it wrapped up a lot of different uh, cool elements, I think, all at once, and it it moved at a fair at a pretty fair clip, also. And so, I wonder if, like, like I might would if 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 somebody was interested in wanting to just pick up a historical Howard uh, tale, I might push that towards them as opposed to the Sowers of the Thunder, just on the basis of, hey, this is a more intimate story, and you get this this push-pull between Elborak and... Well, actually, now that I'm saying it, like we've got Elborak and his antagonist in that story. The, the British not, guy, it's yeah. It's not necessarily Hoxton. that far. Like It's the frenemy and kind I would of mentality say, you know, Blood, Blood of the Gods is not really a historical story. It's, it's, okay. it's actually, to Howard, it's contemporary. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... But, but uh, I would... I understand what you're I think I understand what you're saying and that uh, and it's true. There's a lot to try to follow in Swords of the Thunder. He's giving you a lot of this sort of backstory in there of this guy was the ruler of this kingdom and this guy was the ruler of this kingdom and this guy was the ruler of that kingdom. Right. And, and keeping all the characters straight. If you if you're the sort of person who's inclined to keep all the characters straight, that's kinda of confusing. Maybe if I was going to, I think if I was going to push any one historical crusader type story on anybody, it would be um, da, 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 Lord of Samarkand. Lord of Samarkand, okay. The one, okay. The one with Donald McNeese as the protagonist, the okay. Scotsman, and it's about Samarlain or Timur Ilang. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that one is, I mean, you talk about a grim protagonist and but it follows along kind of one track. It's you don't have to learn all the different kingdoms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, these more his, like truly historical stories, they they have a much broader table setting that you need to kind of understand, uh, and they're more they're more expansive. I mean, you're you're right. Like with the the statement that I made about Elborak, not truly like like the way you said that it's not truly like a historical fiction kind of piece. It's because it's more immediate. It's more contemporary, but it's also a more immediate kind of story too, right? Like it's yeah. 
it's to us to us it's historical but to yeah. him it was contemporary yeah. speaking of uh, historical slash contemporary did you guys uh, get the same little thrill that I get going back through this story and seeing all these places from the news like <laughs> Ramallah and Basra and you know Mosul, all like it's Mosul. Weird. That is weird. Yeah, it. This was the first time this this season when I read stories and and was like, oh, I kind of know where that is, <laughs> based on yeah. based on the news. Yeah, based on you know contemporary happenings. Yeah, yeah the names I'm with don't you. seem exactly like they are today, but of right. course they're it's still the same place. Mm-hmm. John, you've been quiet over there. I've just been listening to Rusty. I, I, I'm enjoying myself. I feel like I'm sitting at the at the feet of a sage. <laughs> <laughs> this is fine, man. Well, I, dude, that's that's my great talent. Is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think I, part of it people is, think I know what I'm talking about, and there you it's go. The southern accent. It's very captivating. The rhythm, it's, it's good. Yeah. It's good podcast stuff. <laughs> well, when you when you can see the, you know, when you can see the beard and stuff, it really helps. The podcast <laughs> have that. So. <laughs> so, so Rusty, you know, we've thrown out like a handful of different extra readings and stories that that we haven't yet covered with this season, and th- this is the ultimate uh, uh, season eight capper that we're doing here. Yep. I guess, in your opinion, in terms of a Howard like text or tome like is it the the del rey uh like uh el borak or swordswoman like book that would be the the go-to to pick up like the definitive howardian eastern stories or is there another good text that's out there or i mean of course the answer is there's a lot of them but like, but what is the easily yeah. accessible like beater paperback well, the, and what's what, the newer the stuff two, the two the two best collections of those would be well the the Del Rey is the most accessible, probably. It's easiest to get. Yeah. Del so Rey Sword Woman, right? That's, I mean, obviously, that's got a lot of other stuff in it, too, because mm-hmm. it goes beyond the Crusader stories into the more medieval and and beyond. Yeah. Um, the one that John was showing, the Lord of Samarkand, was that, John, was that, the title of that one was Lord of Samarkand, wasn't it? Correct. Is that, is that one of the adventures of the old, uh, another adventure tales of the old Orient? Is that one of the uh, Bison Press? It is. Okay. Yeah, it's the Bison Press. That's got all of, all of these in it. And of course, the, the Donald Grant Sowers of the Thunder volume is, if you can get a hold of it, it was published by Zebra in paperback. Um, or by Don Grant, you know, in hardback, it's just beautiful. It's got hundreds of Roy Crinkle illustrations throughout, and it's just a gorgeous book. And it's what uh, Marcelo Anciano, who was the brains and inspiration and, and uh, power behind the Wandering Star and then the Del Rey books, that was his model. You know, we, we he and I agreed when we first talked about it that that was a gorgeous book, mm-hmm. and we wanted to sort of pattern Wandering Star books after that. Um, so any of those three, if you've if you've got Swords of the Thunder, that's fine. If you've got the Del Rey book, or if you've got the Bison Lord of Samarkand, we just 
any of those are fine and just read the stories on them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Yeah. The, uh, I just did a quick, <laughs> a book search. A cause that's, that's how I roll. <laughs> Brought to you by a yeah, book. <laughs> like you can't, you can get that paperback, the, the sowers of the thunder from zebra, like for four to six bucks. So, you you know, it's accessible. Now you have to be forewarned that it will fall apart. Uh, uh, it depends, you, dude. You gotta look for the, you gotta look for the very goods. That's the thing. You can't just I mean, settle for the goods. The, you gotta go for the VGs. That's okay. I mean, I, I, my copy of it has like whole clumps of pages coming out. But you, if you if you can read page numbers, you can stick them back in there. So so here's here's the thing that might be heretical. I don't know. I I don't think it's too heretical. But I will absolutely take some uh, like packaging tape. To like uh, rectify a, a broke spine or the binding of, of a paperback, I do that shit all the time. <laughs> MacGyver. I, I mean, I don't do it to like like uh, uh, something that's like super. And that just makes Luke. That just makes everybody else's copy more valuable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll I'll admit I started doing that with my like I, I have a handful of the Bane like the Bane like collections of the the Howard stuff. And so I started doing it with them just so they would be like useful because I really yeah. like those. I, I like the ch- yeah. super cheesemo like like cover art of the the Bane editions, and I also just like the the front little essay materials. And so I I started popping the a little bit of packaging tape to like rectify the the spines of my my a books goods and but, goods. But the expensive packaging tape, like. The good kind. <laughs> well, I have to say, I do a good <laughs> the job. The really good it. stuff. Yeah. But here's the I thing. Confess, I'm not gonna like... I will confess to you that during the time, there was a period where I was in the, I guess, 80s or 90s, I was doing a lot of um, analyses where I was comparing the Lancer books and other um, presentations of Howard stories. And I had... I had beat up copies of the Lancer books and I just took all the pages out separately and I was I had uh-huh. highlighted and had notes on them and stuff. And so I've got like loose pages from Lancer books that are clipped together with those uh, binder clips. I mean, uh-huh. I think, I think that's kind of beautiful. I don't like, so, so a, a seer, like I've been reticent. I, I've been able to get like all of the, the, uh, Carl Edward Wagner, like Kane stuff in paperback form. Damn, and uh-huh. and I've I've you're, I've, you're I've, lucky, man. That stuff that stuff is getting ridiculously expensive. Well, I've, yes. I've, I've not applied the packaging tape to any of the spots of those books. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I know they're only like ten or fifteen bucks for a paperback or something, but well, uh, but I've been hey, able to snag them. I'm like ten or man, fifteen for a paperback, Come right? On. And, and, and right, and, and for, for like a, a, a shitty paperback from like the. You know, the beater twenty or thirty years ago. Carl Wagner group and everybody's complaining. I mean, they can't find some of his stuff for reasonable price. Dude, I I was I I can I can brag and say I was able to to get all of the cane books within the ballpark of like I got a couple of them for about three ninety nine somewhere in there, but a handful of them I did I did pay you know upwards of seven or eight bucks, but I was Mm -hmm. able to get in and out for like you know between that four to eight dollars a book and i'm i'm glad because those the uh the short story collections they're they're stupid expensive like if you want to find night winds or something now it's hard to yeah. do it like you can't <laughs> the good and thing do is you have his, uh, 
two his the first two horror stories collections. No, the, they're, uh, they're so why not expensive. you and I and, and yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna swipe in though. Like I'm gonna see some silly bookseller post them for like less than ten bucks, less than fifteen bucks for a paperback, and I'm gonna swoop in pff, under the cover of the night, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get them up. <laughs> Carl is Carl was a good buddy, and he's he's a guy whose work should be available, and for some you know for some reason they just haven't been reprinting his stuff it's, it's, it's sad to me bad. i mean just recently in the past couple of years you can get ebooks of of at least the cane stuff but i wish there would be some way to get that stuff accessibly uh yeah the cool thing is i mean we gotta we gotta rope it back around to the the, the topic du jour <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about wagner another day like that's i, I really want to talk about wagner hint hint uh <laughs> But uh, uh, me too. Carl was my buddy. Carl was uh, a fellow Knoxville man. That, that blows my mind, Rusty. Like I, I don't know. It's but it just gets at the connection of like that era of writers. I mean, they were just this generation and a generation before. Uh, that's that's crazy, man. Like that you were able to to rub shoulders with with folks. I remember at Howard Days too, though. You talked about talking with uh, Sprague de Camp and, and Ascots and whatnot too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sprague was Sprague was a perf- Sprague was a very nice, gentlemanly person. You know, Sprague was very patrician. He was very. Um, he just, you know, was gentleman of the old school. Dude, I don't even know, but I just think that like Christopher Lee's voice is is El Sprague de Camp's voice. I have no no basis whatsoever. Very other than, deep. <laughs> like it would, yes, his voice his voice was very deep. It was very precise. He spoke very precisely. Um, he wrote the same way he spoke. You could hear the commas. <laughs> so so luke i don't know if you mentioned this but you're reading the goblin tower i am yeah 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 so so i'm doing that right now and that's that's a whole lot of fun i'm going to talk about that on another yeah, podcast coming i up. love his it's, I it's I fun actually i don't remember the goblin tower i love his herald shea stuff so i need to the get into some with fletcher, fletcher pratt so is that the complete enchanter or is that is the herald shade uh, apart from the no, complete, that's the complete enchanter. okay yeah, yeah. Okay. so i've passed up that damn book a couple different times and i'm gonna pick it up because it's only I, i'm such a tightwad man whatever like, i see i see a tight i, <laughs> you, I see a, i you, see a paperback over four bucks i'm like that's too much you, i'm gonna, not, I'm gonna you not. buy something on a books every be. week <laughs> but, but but it's for four on bucks the, on the princely salaries <laughs> that college professors make i don't know why you guys aren't out oh man we're accumulating <laughs> you have no idea you have no idea how rich we are it's, it's yes <laughs> But so I, rich. I, I really, so rich. I really am enjoying. Well, Josh uh, is blowing it all on Ashley's first diamonds, but yeah. Great. Aside from that, <laughs> I'm able to cobble together enough money to buy some Ham's beers. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it's worth saying that it's brought to you from the land of sky blue waters. Once again, yes. Once more. <laughs> I guess we should put a capper on this episode. Let's do it. And then and then post-episode, we can BS a little bit longer. But uh, thank you, Rusty, so much for joining us for this episode. It's always delightful to be with you guys. I wish I wish you would invite me more often. Oh, we're going to have to make a point. Hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anytime you want. Like, seriously, if you... 
if you decide, you know what, I want to talk about a, a story this week, let us know and we'll be more diligent about letting you know what the stories are. So you can let us know when you want to talk about something. Well, and while you went off to the restaurant or someplace there, Luke and I were talking about Carl Edward Wagner. I, w- I want to be in on one of those discussions. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the, So we have a Word document, and uh, I, I don't know. It's like eight pages long at this point, but there's a there's definitely a road of cane, and uh, we're going to do that at some point. Right, right Luke? Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much, man, for joining us, taking the time, and, and talking about Sowers of the Thunder with us. Well, mostly I feel like I've diverted you from talking about Source of the Thunder, but <laughs> no, 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 it's it's all it's holistic, right? Like it's all part of the same package. Uh, but it is a it is a great story, and again, I want to tell everybody that I, if you haven't read Howard's historical adventures, particularly the quote Crusader stories, the stories that are set in the uh, period from about eleven hundred to thirteen hundred mm-hmm. AD. You're just really missing out on his some of his very very best writing. I mean, this is Howard at his peak. And, and we've so we've, get to we've, it. we've offered so is the thunder lines of Tiberius, uh, you know, any of those. And we've offered several different collections that you can look for to find those uh, if you're interested in that. Um, but until next time, uh, you can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at the Chromecast, and you can find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash the Chromecast. And if you're brave enough to call us and leave a voicemail, that number is 859-429-CROM. Right, John? It, it is absolutely correct. And they have to and get if their... if they contact us, they can win free stuff. That's right. From... Our mystery drawers. That's right. If you call and leave a voicemail and give us give us your give us your uh, address, we're going to send you a book and at least one piece of junk from John's junk drawer. That's right. Uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna broadcast your your mailing well, address. I'm not sure I'm into mystery drawers. <laughs> I, you know, junk drawer, I understand. <laughs> so if you're interested in getting things in the mail, strange things from the Chromecast. Uh, just send us a voicemail. Let us know your mailing address, and we'll play that stuff on the air minus your address. We won't tell people where you live. Get on it quick, people. And this is John, it. Uh, John, I hope you get to feeling better soon, man. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and we don't know where we're going next time, right? Like, we're at the end of a road. We're coming up to a crossroads. We don't know which way to go. We've got some stuff in the hopper. The, yeah, that's the true. We're d- cloudy, though. It's, it's the fog is thick. The fog is thick. <laughs> there, there are frogs. Are there frogs again? No frogs. The, the, no frogs. The fog of podcasting. I don't podcasting. Know what you guys make it out with amphibians <laughs> the anymore. Fog, the, fog, the fog of Have podcasting. Have you seen that uh, meme on, on Facebook that was about conversations where God's doing all these creative things? But one of them is, oh, darn, I, I've been leaning on the frog button. <laughs> is that awesome. a gary larson that sounds like a gary larson uh so we don't know where we're going next time but we're going to post a story list in a direction asap yeah you got everybody will figure out figure it out about the time that we do we'll we'll let it we'll about let it be known time. yeah no i mean like maybe a little bit of time after we figure it out but that's right it's gonna be good We've got good ideas. We've got good ideas. We're going to keep it short and punchy. We're going to get in there. Yeah. 
gonna do the attack. Ooh, short and punchy. That sounds like Steve Costigan's. Oh, we've already, oh, we've already been down that road. Yeah, we've been there. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yep. But uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Let's get all, let's let's get let's get in and get out. All right, we're out. <laughs> this is it. Uh, we'll see you a little bit further down the road. Who knows where?
Hello, 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 hello. Is it on? 